Hello everyone and welcome back to A Pint With Peter, an informative and somewhat comedy podcast where me and my mate Chris sit down with my dad as we try to bridge the intergenerational gap. This week on the podcast we will finally be chatting about the music icon that is Jimi Hendrix, long teased, and Peter's experience of seeing him at the Isle of Wight Festival. As always, I don't know much about Hendrix, so looking forward to learning a bit from this episode. So on that, let's get back to it! Hendrix, right. Hey. Hendrix, in my view, was a mystic. I, I think Hendrix definitely had a mystical side to him. And uh, I think in the end, it was that kind of soft, um, empathetic side of him that probably killed him. I mean, he, he died when he was 27, as you know. Um, why, why he's... And I'm kind of really pushing the guy's case here. Because if you look at the history of music popular music you you will know Frank Sinatra won't you etc etc I mean who who to you although you've never liked their music would be holding iconic status who can you think of Bing Crosby people like that I'm not asking you to go that far back but who who are the standouts you know John Lennon ACDC Oh, the guy from ACDC, yeah. wow. Yeah. And then I'm just trying to think now. Yeah. Like that, I... If he's listening in, he'd love to hear that, wouldn't he? I mean, the thing, the thing, what I'm trying to get over to you is why do 30-year-old guys working in record shops still look at you with a tinge of kind of envy that you've actually seen a standout star like Hendrix all those years ago. You know, what is it about the guy that was so interesting? Even if you don't like the music of the period, even if you don't particularly like that style of music. It's, uh, it's almost like the, these people are woven into like musical Yeah, vocal. indeed. They yeah. are like one-offs. That's, I think that's it. I think they are one-offs. Yeah. I think I think in his case that would be a very uh, astute observation. Uh, as you know, the guy I converse with in, in America is is a very uh, talented guitarist himself, and he, he, even he says that you know what Hendrix could actually play, his technical competence was out of sight. Hmm. Um. I've just got one book over there. It's the Philip Norman book about the life of Hendrix, but I'm sure you could fill a whole shelf full. And one of the um, stories told about Hendrix, he came over from the States, obviously. He was uh, very quickly introduced to all the leading players of the time. You know, your Eric Clapton's, etc., your Jeff Beck's, and they would have all seen him play. And basically, it was look upon his works and despair. Mm. They looked at the guy. They, they said to a, to a man, I'm going to give up. <laughs> this guy is so good. He's off the scale. I can never approach his, his ability. I cannot question his ability, but it almost makes you wonder if he didn't die, would he still be held in high regard? That's a... That's, that, that's, in, in the that's, sense, would his quality start to yeah, slip? That's... I mean... Again, there's a whole podcast in this. I mean, I'm going off to tangents. I know you like my tangents. I mean, when I was at university, uh, we were invited to a lecture that was led by 
uh, I'd know how old he'd be, a 40-year-old writer called Alan Garner. And Alan Garner has recently <laughs> been uh, nominated for... Uh, he hasn't won it, but he's been nominated for a very highly regarded literary award. Uh, he is, if he's awarded, if he gets the prize, he'll be 88. So what I'm saying is a, an eminent writer I would have seen as a student is still producing wonderful work. I know you two guys like art. I mean, you look at people like Matisse. Uh, was it Matisse with the cutouts? I mean, he he was producing great stuff in his 70s. Ditto various classical musicians and so on. So I think in the main, you know, everything I've read and understood over the years, I think generally your powers wane. I've got to be honest with you. I, you know, I, don't, I think there are very, very few individuals or, or acts even that can sustain themselves at a very high level over over many many years do you agree yeah i'd have to agree because even with current society now you see bands trying to follow trends that isn't them and it's just a bit awkward then fade off into obscurity yeah Yeah. but i I think chris's um idea of calling hendrix unique is right i mean several points of uniqueness i mean he was african-american he inevitably didn't come from it wasn't a dirt poor background but it was a usual story you know his father left uh both his mother and his father were, were kind of alcoholics um he had a very rough childhood uh oddly it sounds like something of monty python doesn't it? his first instrument apparently was a one-string ukulele <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how apocryphal it is, but I imagine little Jimi Hendrix lying there, and he's often described as one-stringed ukulele as a defence against his old man hitting him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You couldn't make it up. But he was self-taught, basically. You know, I was talking to Andy, uh, my friend in America, about you know what, what you've got in the States now. You've got these big music colleges and schools uh, the big one is the Juilliard. I don't know if you ever heard of it. And uh, you can now do a master's in playing a bass guitar or whatever. And um, a lot of these eminent players, it's like uh, people like Coldplay and so on. You know, they've been through private school. They've been really, really well tutored. But he, he amazingly taught himself. Hmm. I don't know how much you know about playing. I don't know a lot myself. But it's a bit like, I think, Paul McCartney. He He doesn't play or didn't play uh, in a conventional manner. You know, with the guitar held like this, playing with his right hand, he, he would hold it like that. So he's played on that side um, with the guitar upside down, as it were. Um, he uh, had an interesting kind of career before music. He was actually in the... Um, 101st Airborne, would you believe? I didn't actually know that. Yeah, he was in the army. He was in the American army. I can't remember the reasons why, but he didn't see active service. I don't. He wasn't in Vietnam or anything like that. You know, he wasn't like Elvis. I don't think Elvis Presley saw active service. But what he did, he, you know, have you ever heard this ten thousand hours idea? Yeah. You know the 10,000 yeah. hours. Yeah, I think you practice something. Oh, that's right. Hours. So people, people, it's a theory. I'm trying to remember the guy's name. I've got three of his books on the, on that shelf, and I can't even remember his name. Oh, Gladwell. Malcolm, it's the Malcolm Gladwell idea. I don't know how true it is, but he, he was like the Beatles. 
you know, he spent quite a few years uh, playing, uh, obviously being black. He played on a black music circuit. It was called the Chitlin circuit. Do you know what Chitlin is? It rings a bell. It's a food. It's a, it's a kind of food stuff. So, you know, this Chitlin circuit, you know, you'd obviously pay your number of cents, dollars, and obviously you'd get some food and people would play for you. Do you know what I'm saying? And there was a circuit, a black circuit around the States. And um, if you go back to um, a very, very early podcast, he uh, cut his teeth with people like Little Richard. Do you remember way back in the podcast, we talked about early, uh, you know, rock and rollers. Little Richard was one. And um, he played support guitar for Little Richard. And uh, I think Little Richard got a bit pissed off with him. Because his fashion style and his uh, style of playing and everything, I think Little Richard felt he was being upstaged. Mm-hmm. But uh, but what 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 he did? As interestingly, if you're into this rock history stuff, people like Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, blah blah, they would have played eventually, obviously in their own groups, doing their own material, but they would have earned a lot of money as session men. So before Hendrix became well-known uh, in, in the US and, and particularly in England, he's already played on 24 singles, apparently, and three albums. And what he, what he did, very canny, he learned his stagecraft and showmanship from all these years of playing. Are you with me? It's like a lot of rock music stories. I mean, you know, it's a cliche, raw and smooth with the telling, but... Um, when I was a kid, I'm talking being 14, 15, something like that, The um, one of the big groups was called The Animals, House of a Rising Sun. Do you know that song? Yeah. Great song. Great yeah, song. Yeah, it's a about yeah. actually. Oh, he was discovered by one of the animals called Eric Burden, who I think he played bass, actually, for The Animals. And uh, Eric Burden, obviously canny guy, saw Hendrix playing, in some bar, knew he was incredibly talented and basically invited him over to England. So he was completely, more or less completely unknown in the States. He came to England um, and, you know, very over a very short period of time, he, he became mass-marketed. Hendrix's career lasted four years. That's it, four years. So I I would have first come across Hendrix as, um, I don't know, 14, 15-year-old. And uh, when when I was at school, uh, you had all these uh, singles coming out. Hey Joe, I don't know if you know the song, Hey Joe, it's it's a classic song. Uh, Purple Haze, I bet you know Purple Haze. Purple Haze, The Wind Cries Mary. Um, And they were really not, they didn't get to the top, by the way. Because it was probably somebody like bloody Cliff Richard or whatever, or the Rustic and Brighouse Brass Band or something, or Sandy Shaw. I was talking about that school choir you mentioned. That's the one. <laughs> well, they were from Manchester, yeah. actually. I'm trying to think of who they were. But um, we are the pinnacle of music. <laughs> my God. I mean, the thing about the guy, if you list it, he, he was Afro-American. He was. He wasn't particularly tall, actually. He was angular, thin, and angular, like a lot, like a lot of people. He had g- good, interesting looks. He was. He was a massive fashion icon. 
even I think when he was playing on that chitlin circuit, he was the kind of guy who'd have the fancy pants and the and the so on and so forth. Although he was principally loved by guys, he definitely and a lot of his songs are very very sexual. You know, and he obviously had a very strong libido, but he wasn't. Um, how can I put it? If you look through his repertoire, none of his songs disparage women or you know make them feel inferior. I think he, I think he obviously really did love women, and uh, women loved him as well. I mean, his albums. He basically had three albums in his time. First one was. I mean, if you want to buy these things now, God, I can kick myself. Oh, it I think of my record me. collection back when I was in my early 20s. It would be worth a lot of money now. Um, I experienced that was kind of original psychedelia. But why I mention it is, it, funnily enough, I don't know if it's the age we live in, but his second album was Electric Ladyland. And last time you were here, you were looking at that Richard Neville book, weren't you? Just hold it up for a minute. That's the one. And, and this Richard Neville book, it's got a, it's got a, it's got a milk soft beardy guy sitting there amongst five, other five women there. Mm. Uh, four. Uh, four women, and that are they naked or are they scantily clad? They're fully nude. They're fully nude. Okay. Well, Electric Ladyland, and by the way, this cover was produced without any, to me, Ferrari. It showed Hendrix sitting in the middle of, I don't know, I'd never counted. There must be 16 naked women. <laughs> if you go to Translate, check it out on the on the internet. The album was called Electric Ladyland. But when I was looking yesterday, you put in Electric Ladyland and it shows like a blank cover. It's a bit like the Blind Faith thing. You know the cover? Oh. Yeah. Maybe it's, um, it's that Berenstein Bears thing. His dad remembers it differently to how it actually was. What do you mean? Something suggestive? No, yeah. it's, it's called and it's where you remember one thing, but it's different. Oh, okay. yeah. it's, okay. it's, the, it's the Mandela effect. Yeah, the Mandela effect. Ah. So what you remember could be not what... Oh, no, no, was. no, no. There are definitely <laughs> about 16. Yeah. I mean, interestingly... How, I mean, I found the cover no problem. <laughs> have you really? How I, many, th- I think you've just got a safe search. <laughs> how many naked women are there? Uh, Why do you count that, Chris? I mean, I mean, the other thing about the guy was he could play anything. He could play blues, he could play jazz, he could play psychedelia. And I know you're not particularly keen on it, but um, he is really considered to be the inventor of heavy metal. No, really? Yeah, because some of his early tracks... Like Purple Haze. I'll play it to you later. We're quite heavy, man. Okay. So he, he had everything going for him, basically. But you think about it. How many other black rock and roll icons can you think of? I bet you can't think of any. I mean, it's this, it, it, this is the whole point. I mean, like a little Russell tangent again. I was talking with it with Alex the other day because there's a band we discovered recently called Magnolia Park, pop punk band. And one thing that stood out to us, the front man was black. Interesting, yeah. And then we were saying, I mean, like I said, it could be my musical knowledge not being yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Off the top of my head, we couldn't name many yeah, pop punk bands where the front man is, is black. It's black, that's right. Well, for this genre of music, yeah. is, is what you're saying. Yeah, because um, the only... Uh, 
near contemporary, although it would have been quite a lot later, I can think of, is a band called Mahogany Rush. And Mahogany Rush, I might have got this completely wrong, so forgive me, Mahogany Rush, the leader, was black, and he considered himself to be literally the reincarnation of Hendrix. Yeah. <laughs> would you believe so? Yeah, just 19. Nineteen, Jesus <laughs> Christ! It is a double spread, though. Yes. Yeah. So. Ah, well done. Yeah. It yeah. is a double spread. I mean, he, he must have slept with thousands of women, by the way, um, which caused many, many problems, as you can imagine. But what what they what Chas Chandler and others did, they put him together with two white guys. So his bassist Noel Redding and the drummer Mitch Mitchell were white. And it was, you know, the, the Hendrix experience that made those singles and those LPs was, if you want, a multiracial band. And basically what you have, as with many three-piece bands, is you had a virtuoso guitar player, a genius guitar player, and two pretty competent sidesmen. You know, I, I, think if, I think if you look at how a band works, the bassist and the drummer, they're like the chassis of a car. Mm. And Hendrix would be the engine. Because he also sang as well. He didn't just play guitar in a genius way. He also sang. I mean, the guy had problems. Uh, the guy had, had real problems. I'll, I'll come on to those in a minute. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to go, just looking through my notes here, I'm going to actually take you now. I'm not going to get my hypnotist hat on. I'm going to take you now. Back 50 years, let me take you back 50 years, and I actually wrote some of this uh, shortly after, and over the years I've changed it. So we're there, Isla White, it's Sunday evening, and Barney and I are basically tootling around in the dark, trying to sell our, our speed. Are you with me? And then this comes on, I hope it plays. This is... The sound that Barney and I heard through the crowd. Are you ready? This is where we heard. No, no, exactly. <laughs> this is what we heard, guys, 50 years ago. Get ready for it. Get ready. It's going to come in a crescendo in a minute. He's on! He's on! Quick, let's go! I was, I was going to ask you that. I mean, you, you immediately said that's Hendrix, isn't you? Because you could hear the fuzzy guitar. Hey, it's interesting the fuzzy guitar. You do really yeah. Hear it. That song is a single, and it was the. It wasn't just my Isle of Wight festival. It was the one before. It was the kind of theme tune of the festival and each morning when the sun rose that played <laughs> and uh, we heard that and in our probably semi-speedy state thought oh god he's on he's on it was midnight and we we ran we literally ran and being very kind of strategically minded guys we ran along the perimeter of the crowd um, oh, it's a smart move. Here we are. So here we go. This is what I this is what I would have written fifty years ago. 
Through the fog of competing sounds, we suddenly picked out the high-pitched whine of the festival's adapted rallying call, Amazing Grace, a hypnotic instrumental version of the traditional tune. The mantra-like fuzz guitar was calling us, summoning us believers to centre stage, like sirens, you know what I mean? You know that famous painting of the sirens? We literally sprinted through the margins of the crowd, stepping over bodies in sleeping bags, slaloming through knots of people, eventually insinuating ourselves just under to the right of the main stage. I don't think you could do that now, could you? But we sussed out how you could quickly get more or less to the front of the stage. We breathlessly stood there, totally oblivious of any disapproval from other hippies. <laughs> it gives you an idea of my kind of character back then. Looking up onto the bare staging, light falling onto us from various spotlights below the painted planks of the altar. This wasn't a stage, man. This was the altar Jimmy was going to play. Fuck me! No, Hendrix! He wasn't actually there, so we'd, we'd breathlessly run, listening to that, thinking he's on stage with me. This was midnight, by the way. Then on his stumble, and this is, this is really telling. I mean, back in the day, I don't know about you guys, I'm sure this kind of trope exists. If you went to watch a band, if somebody in the band was obviously stoned, it was, oh, look at him, he's stoned, it's great. I mean, I've seen bands where they've stopped performing because a band member isn't capable of... of I know it's decadent, I know mm. it's stupid, but do you, do you recognise that? Oh, yeah. And hey, man, Jimmy's stoned. You know, do, do you recognise that? Yeah, I would say when I saw my chemical romance, I think they were all intoxicated. Really? So the playing was crap? Oh, yeah, it was awful. It, it really put me off them. Oh, okay. So they're out of tune and... Yeah, they, they didn't play an encore. Just buggered off after that. It felt like 20 minutes. And they wow. Off. Ripped off? Yeah. Yeah, but Hendrix came on. I've, I've never yet found any footage of this, but I remember it. That's, that's the difference between me and these people who write about this shit. I was actually there. I've got a photographic memory. He came on stage, virtually unannounced, by the way, very low key, and he, he mumbled, because he was quite a mumbler. He said, I ain't come. Interesting, isn't it? In, in other words, I'm not really here. I'm still kind of whatever. I'm in a different zone. Um, and that's that was it. Hendrix was there. He was in the flesh. He was performing his last glorious rites on a farmer's field. Overlooking the high escarpment, Desolation Row, behind the, where, behind which the solent churned. Behold the legend, self-absorbed, performing in the drizzle. Eighteen tortured songs. Oh. Do you want me to leave it there? That is, that is a good Because I'm getting the hook here. So next time, I promise, I will begin with my genuine authentic impressions of watching the guy play his 18 songs i mean i'm always good because i've seen say kings of leon at leeds and light shows fireworks but i can just imagine jimmy playing with almost like a lamp you've got that's right yeah you know, yeah about. you're just stage lights like you'd see at a theater bare boards Whereas I feel like now, if he played, it would be like a just yeah, and you, you, and, 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 and you wonder to a certain extent how much that enhances yeah. a performance. Because one of my favourite performances, and they're not by no stretch one of my favourite bands, 
uh, is Nirvana Unplugged. Hmm. I don't know if you ever watched it. You know, you, you hear those guys playing those songs, you know, literally unplugged. It's brilliant. Um, so I'll come on to him next, next session, if that's okay. Because I think we've digressed, but I think it's been good digression. Your mum's nodding. Your mum's no, nodding. She, so. This is a duly approved yeah. episode. Well, everyone, we are going to leave it there this week with Hendrix about to start playing and with the rare Mother Approved Episode Award. Hopefully we lured some Hendrix fans to the podcast with this episode. And as always, we would love to hear your thoughts on the man. Did you see him live? Are you jealous of those who did? Or were you lucky enough to meet him? Maybe also let us know what you think the music scene would be like if he was still around today. As always, you know how. Head over to Twitter and use our handle at a pint with Peter. Or if Twitter's not your thing, use our email, a pint with Peter at gmail.com. And as always, as a little bonus to us, if you can like and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Well, everyone, thanks as always for listening. Get your air guitars ready and on to the next one.